Good afternoon. It's Friday the 8th of December 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link today, we have Vanessa Bailey and uh, Ben Rubin. Uh, welcome to the programme both. Now we're going to start uh, with immigration and, uh, well, a little piece of video because uh, last week, uh, as some people will have seen, uh, Matthew Rycroft, the Permanent Secretary, former Permanent Representative to the United Nations for the UK, but the current Permanent Secretary for the uh, Home Office, uh, was uh, giving evidence to the uh, Home Affairs Select Committee and he was being asked about immigration. So let's uh, have a look at this. Hi guys, um, just one question from me. Put foreign offenders aside and Albanians aside, just forget about those numbers. How many people travelling on small boats that's been refused asylum have been sent to a third country or back to their own country over the past three years? I don't think we have. I don't. I don't. I think we'll, we'll, we'll write to the committee with those numbers, Mr. Anderson. That's quite. That's staggering. That's actually. It's staggering. Just sort of so, so, okay, then let's do it for the last year. I, d I don't have a number for non-Albanian, non-FNOs. Perhaps they might be able to help you. Let's do oh. last week then. Do we have any figures about anything? No. Yes. In the last six months, just. How many in the last six months? As Simon said, there. I mean, there, yeah. there are, there are uh, charter flights and, and other ways of doing returns the whole time, uh, constantly, and we can yeah, we can no, give you whatever whatever timeline. Like. People who are coming here uh, who are being refused asylum, because I'm, I'm yes. sure there's a few. How yeah. many were sent back last month? Incoming. We'll, we'll, we'll write to you with those numbers. Just, I'm sorry, Chair, but I find it absolutely staggering that the, the, the big boss hasn't got a clue, not just on this question, but nearly every other question we've asked today. Why is that? We've, 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 we've got that. I think Mr Ridley's looking for the numbers, and we will, we, will, we will send them to you. OK. That's me, John, Chair. Thank you. So quite quite incredible. Uh, so he uh, has now decided to write on a number of diff different issues. And if we bring this one on screen, uh, this is uh, uh, about migration and the uh, the um, Rwanda deal in particular. So uh, there's various information now coming out of Matthew Rycroft because he was asked in that select committee about uh, the cost of Rwanda and so on as well. So let's uh, let's just uh, have a, a quick look at that at this. Um, He's saying here, uh, at the evidence sessions on the 29th of November and the 4th of December, respectively, uh, you and your committees asked me about payments to the UK government, about payments the UK government had made to the government of Rwanda for the purposes of migration and economic development partnership. Uh, as I said then, the total the government paid in the financial year 22-23 uh, was £140 million, bearing in mind that nobody has been sent to Rwanda yet. And uh, of course, huge amounts of money have also been spent on the court case. Uh, but he went on to say, ministers uh, have agreed that I can disclose now the payments so far in 23-24 financial year. Uh, there has been one payment of £100 million paid in April this year. In the 2024-2025 financial year, we anticipate another payment of £50 million as part of the ETIF as agreed with the government of Rwanda. So uh, that's what something around £300 million uh, in total so far 
both in the past and this year and then uh, next year as well for something that hasn't actually happened yet. Um, this is, of course, the, the narrative that uh, the UK government is pushing uh, and the focus is all on small boat arrivals. And as we showed on Wednesday's programme, that, of course, is the smallest proportion of people coming into the country. Uh, but they're saying that uh, small boat arrivals are down by a third, uh, that ra raids on illegal workers are up by nearly 70%. Of course, you can make a statement about uh, being up by nearly 70% if, if you're basically not doing very much, then adding a little bit appears to be a lot if, when you put it in terms of a percentage uh, and so on. And they're saying over 22,000 illegal migrants returned is what they're claiming. Um, now, Richard Littlejohn in the mail uh, was asking a question, why are the Tory, are Tory MPs prioritising illegal migrants over British people? And I just wanted to highlight this. Uh, he's saying, so if it's safe for an English woman, he was talking about uh, the fact that Rwanda is a great destination to go uh, on holiday and so on, if you want to go for uh, to, to see the wildlife. Uh, he says, so it's, if it's safe for an English woman of a certain age, uh, for Hart and Hilda from Hemel Hempstead and Hank and Hillary from Hot Springs, Arkansas, why is it unsafe for Kurdish gangsters and suspected Islamist terrorists who've entered Britain illegally? So uh, that is, of course, the question, because if we uh, look at the standard here, we've got to remember uh, that Rwanda said uh, a year ago or so that it could only bring 200 migrants from the UK under the deportation scheme. The original agreement was only for a thousand migrants. So this is a huge amount of money to be spending on a program that could at best uh, be dealing with a thousand migrants when they're saying that they have already, or the claim from the government is that they've already removed 22,000 illegal migra migrants from the country. Uh, so what's this really all about? And of course, we've got to look at it from this point of view as well. Uh, the BBC reporting that the Home Office had said more than 17,000 uh, migrants from small boats are missing. Um, so I'm just going to ask the question. This, I'm not saying this is the answer, but in the past, as I think Vanessa can confirm, uh, migrants or, or people have been used, have been moved from country to country to take part in conflict. And if we're moving uh, people that are viewed as being criminals or uh, young men or of fighting age and so on into, into Rwanda, Vanessa, very briefly, at a time when we are uh, looking at uh, the Sahel becoming uh, an increasingly radicalized area with increasing conflict right across the Sahel. Um, this looks a bit like trafficking people into a country uh, where you might want them to be used for a particular purpose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is just exploitation of refugees to serve a purpose to create more refugees. That's yeah. the bottom line, isn't it? Well, <laughs> uh, well pursue a, a, a purpose in, in a region of the of the planet where you want to, to increase chaos, perhaps, as well. Uh, now, just sticking with the immigration issue, of course, one of the big uh, immigration problems of the last uh, decade or so has been grooming gangs. And uh, GB News reporting here that the Rotherham abuse survivor who won the court case in March this year uh, has now, uh, sorry, has now uh, received the right to claim uh, the, to, to force the sale of the rapist's home in order to claim her winnings from the court case. Uh, and this, of course, is a very positive development. Uh, but the point that we've been trying to make for quite some time, of course, is that the issue of grooming gangs is not wholly an immigration issue. It's much broader than that. And if we simply focus on the immigration issue, we're either not dealing with the problem. Actually, we're letting down uh, the victims, the broader victims of uh, uh, sexual abuse and child sexual abuse in particular. So uh, this uh, came out uh, 
today, I think, uh, yesterday, uh, from uh, the Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary saying uh, the report is called an inspection on the effectiveness of the police and law enforcement bodies response to group-based uh, child sexual exploitation in England and Wales. Uh, and uh, so what they're basically talking about here is uh, the fact that it isn't possible to um, actually identify that any particular uh, demographic is responsible for this. So what they're saying is that in towns such as Rotherham and South Yorkshire and Rochdale and Greater Manchester, the known offenders were predominantly of South Asian or Pakistani descent. But in April 2023 in Walsall, Operation Satchel saw 21 people convicted of a range of child sexual abuse offences. All those convicted were white. In December 2020, the Home Office published a paper uh, that considered the characteristics of group-based child sexual exploitation. An accompanying literature review produced in October 2020 noted that the media has given much attention to the model of offending in, uh, involving an Asian perpetrator and a white victim. But papers, uh, sorry, both papers reached the conclusion that it isn't possible to state whether offenders can be linked to group-based child sexual exploitation based on their ethnicity. It also stated that it's likely that no one community or culture is uniquely predisposed to offending. So I'm not saying that uh, any community should be uh, given a pass on this by any means, just that the issue is much broader than just immigration and, uh, and so on. So I just want to put this uh, uh, image up of the common purpose effect from the UK column website here. Uh, if you want to read a little bit more of the background to this, uh, please do have a look at it. Uh, because we have been talking about children in the care of various councils around the world, around the country, sorry, uh, disappearing from council care uh, into grooming gangs and so on. Uh, this is a much bigger issue than just the immigration issue. So let's uh, move on from there. Vanessa, uh, welcome to the programme. Uh, let's have a look at what's going on in Gaza and particularly UK involvement. Yes, Britain is re-emerging as the um, long-time colonialist power, again, in occupied Palestine. Um, of course, there's been reports since the 7th of October of SAS special forces being prepared to join um, IOF forces, particularly inside Gaza itself. But here we have Grant Schatz, uh says a takeover by the Palestinian Authority is the likely solution to the issues in Gaza. So Britain preparing West Bank leaders to govern Gaza. A British military team in the West Bank, which apparently has been there for some time, is helping to prepare the Palestinian Authority to take over the governance of Gaza. As Grant Sharp said, it should be in charge after the war in an attempt to improve the lives of both sides. There is so much doublespeak going on at the moment between the US and UK officials. It's extraordinary. Um, Shaps told the Times that a British support team had been on the ground in Ramallah for more than 10 years and the UK would look at it, increasing its capacity to help the Palestinian Authority. Uh, the support mission, of course, is rarely talked about and it is uh, combined with Canada and America. We have to use this appalling crisis to improve the security of Israelis and the lives and livelihoods of Palestinians. And I think you do that by bringing together an international coalition which is led by Arab states. Now, I'd leave you to guess what those Arab states are, but I would, I would surmise UAE and Saudi Arabia definitely in there and potentially Egypt uh, about what we talked about, the, <clears throat> the Levant uh, gas reserves um, and their exploitation, particularly by British gas. 
Um, so what we're also seeing is uh, UK surveillance aircraft to search for Hamas hostage sites in Gaza, apparently. I have to ask, uh, does Israel, with apparently the, you know, the top-notch uh, security surveillance, are they not able to find the Hamas hostages inside Gaza? No, they need uh, the British and the Americans, of course. So the UK will conduct surveillance flights over Israel and Gaza to search for hostage locations used by Hamas, the MOD has said. Uh, they said a range of unarmed aircraft would be used for the reconnaissance flights, including Shadow R1s, which are used for intelligence gathering. I think that's a, a greater purpose. Information on the potential whereabouts of captives will be shared with Israel. The safety of British nationals is our utmost priority, the MOD said in a statement. In support of the ongoing hostage rescue activity, the UK MOD will conduct surveillance flights over the eastern Mediterranean including operations in airspace over Israel and Gaza. Well, over the eastern Mediterranean, of course, that could include uh, Lebanon and uh, Syria. Surveillance aircraft will be unarmed, do not have a combat role, and will be tasked solely to locate hostages. Only information relating to hostage rescue will be passed to the relevant authorities responsible for hostage rescue. Methinks they, they, they protest too much there. I think Britain is ramping up its involvement from a military perspective uh, in the occupied territories. Okay, thank you for that, Vanessa. Uh, ben, uh, let's welcome you to the programme. And uh, Wednesday, we, we mentioned uh, Andrew Bridgen's event in Parliament uh, on Monday. Now, you attended, uh, and thank you very much for doing that. Uh, but what was, your, what was your take on it? Uh, my take on it was... My personal take on it, and hello everyone, thanks and um, great to be here, of course. Um, a lot of people have built this up to be a momentous occasion. I'm a little bit more cynical myself about the capacity of Parliament to do anything useful or the desire for anyone in Parliament to do anything useful uh, about what's happened with COVID, although it was um, an interesting event to attend. Uh, it felt quite profound being there and Bridgen, who is the kind of sole mainstream politician who's been speaking out in the UK about the COVID situation at really any point over the past couple of years, had convened an all-star cast, actually. So these were the big hitters of uh, science, the big hitters of medicine, the people that have been speaking out on a, on a consistent basis for the past few years about what's been going on. And it was fascinating to be in the room with them. Um, unfortunately, Mike Yeadon and Peter McCullough were not able to contribute. Uh, there was a technical issue. And actually, it turns out um, this has happened uh, three or four times to Mike Yeadon in recent weeks. And he's quite keen to get information out that appears to be being suppressed, whether that's uh, uh, accidental or on purpose is not entirely clear. I'm not throwing any accusations at Bridget or anyone else in the room, but it does see a little bit. Uh, of a coincidence for that to be consistently happening. Um, uh, there were contributions from David Martin, uh, who uh, made some big, bold statements. I mean, these are really big accusations being thrown around. You, you, you can't deny it. Uh, he talked about the fact that there are criminals in every strata of this government, the UK government. He pointed out that this has been going on for over 50 years now. A lot of this is linked into the Wellcome Trust and a bunch of the other institutions that we have here in the medical system and in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, Professor Anglis Dalgleish, who's 
started speaking up recently, actually explained that um, he'd spoken to Chris Whitty and Sage very early on about why the proposed vaccine technology wasn't going to work. And he presented some alternative options, but he was dismissed by them as being a non-expert who they, who they wouldn't listen to. Uh, he also explained how these injections are now leading to turbo cancers. Now, we, we, we've seen this a lot. This seems to be one of the main downstream implications of the RNA technologies that they are accelerating and causing cancers in patients. Dr. Ryan Cole talked about this extensively as well. He showed a bunch of images of spike protein expression in cancer tissue from his laboratory, right? So this is actual science, right? These are the, the scientists using the most advanced techniques available to analyze the situation and what's going on in real time and reporting it to the public and uh, directly to, to, to members of parliament here and actually Mike did a great job on Wednesday of listing out all of the people from uh, the House of Commons and the House of Lords who attended. I'm not going to reel those off now, but there were some people there like David Davis, uh, John Redwood, um, a, a bunch of other, you know, bi big beasts of, of, of the Tory party in attendance who were listening very intently, most of them uh, right the way through to the end. Uh, Pierre Corey was also there. He talked about um, corruption at the University of Oxford and the University of Liverpool uh, by the scientists who designed ivermectin trials, basically set them up to fail so that ivermectin was discredited as a potential treatment. Uh, Robert Malone talked about the fact that he uh, abandoned his, his use of the RNA technology, which he helped to invent uh, back in the late 80s and the 90s when he understood the toxicities that were uh, uh, endemic in these technologies and that it's impossible to overcome them. So he's essentially surprised that this stuff is still being rolled out in, into the arms of people around the world. Um, uh, the big news was Steve Kirsch, who basically uh, uh, talked about some analysis of a data set which has been released by a whistleblower in New Zealand, a fellow called Barry Young, who's accessed some uh, vaccine information right down to the individual patient level um, and has been arrested and imprisoned for that, uh, for illegal, illegally accessing vaccine data. Uh, uh, that data shows a peak in mortality immediately after COVID-19 injections, according to Kirsch's analysis. However, there has been some controversy around that over the past couple of days already. Uh, a gentleman called Nick Hudson, who viewers of this program may well be familiar with, who's the chairman of Panda. He received the data, was able to ask questions about it, and his conclusion, their group's conclusion, was that very little could be concluded from the data. So this has been presented by Kirsch at Bridgen's event as, as some kind of slam dunk, but uh, Nick Hudson and various other people are actually calling this into question, and it would be an extraordinary own goal if it does turn out that this data is unreliable and Bridgen has presented this as some kind of um, smoking gun to, 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 to Parliament, essentially. Um, uh, but obviously, um, none of this is, is really new. I mean, even the stuff that Kirsch was talking about, uh, we, we already know about all of this, right? So um, Heart Group, who I spoke about these numbers um, uh, a few weeks ago on the news, so I won't go into them in too much detail, but Heart Group, the health advisor and recovery team, have already demonstrated uh, in excess of 80,000 deaths up until uh, January this year. 
using ONS data that's already publicly available. So there is a lot of people calling for rele the release of the ONS data and actually a bunch of the politicians. So David Davis, for example, said he would write to the ONS, but we already have had access to ONS data that has already shown us that there have been issues with the vaccination program. Um, another view on this, I think this is really the, 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 the most compelling visualization of what has happened here that I've come across is this, again from Hart, which basically shows, and you should screen grab this and go and have a look at it later on, the darker red and black sections further down the chart show a huge increase in excess deaths, especially in younger ages from mid-2021 onwards, which is completely aligned to the COVID vaccination program. Again, this is all public domain and it's already been shared with MPs. Um, and actually, this isn't the first time that this information has been formally shared in Parliament. So uh, last year on the 18th of October, Asim Malhotra presented his two peer-reviewed papers, which concluded that the COVID RNA vaccine has played a significant or primary role in being a big cause of unexplained cardiac arrest, heart attack, strokes, cardiac arrhythmias, a whole bunch of other things. He called for them to be taken off the market, taken out of the health system. Um, and what's what's the response been from um, from the system itself, from from the politicians, from the NHS? Well, the NHS is still recommending these jabs three years down the track. Uh, and Parliament is actually bringing in its very own Ministry of Truth. So they've just created a new resource to help spot conspiracy theories. This is targeted at members of Parliament. Um, and it's about explaining some of the most prominent conspiracy theories circulating online, including those relating to Ukraine, vaccines and anti-Semitism. And this has been set up as a response to Bridget. Yeah, so they've, they've explicitly stated that this is part of a drive to uh, 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 drive out conspiracy thinking as a response to Andrew Bridget, who apparently has been been radicalised. Um, uh, I, uh, it was good to see the senior politicians paying attention and engaging with this information. I, I should say to them, to, 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 to David Davis, to John Redwood, to all of the other people in attendance, we know that you know now and we are watching you and we are expecting to see some action. And that doesn't just mean writing a letter to the ONS. And we know that the stakes are high, but unfortunately that is the job that you've chosen to take on. In fact, you can see here on my, my just to wrap up, uh, a, 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 a tragedy uh, uh, th this week where the uh, lead EU lawmaker, Michelle Ravassi, who was digging into Ursula von der Leyen's uh, 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 coordination with Pfizer around the COVID vaccination program, has unfortunately and tragically died of a heart attack on the way into work earlier on this week. Um, so, yeah. I'm sure that's just a coincidence, uh, Ben. Uh, but tragic nonetheless. Okay, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, you can do so at community.ukcolumn.org. There are options for you to become a member there, and that help is very much needed and appreciated. You could pick something up at the UK Column shop, and I want to say thank you very much to everybody that's done that in the last few days. Uh, that has been fantastic. Uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org ukcolumn.extracts.co.uk and Kenny asked me to mention, of course, we don't have the uh, Telegram uh, channel on there at the moment, but there is a Telegram channel, so go and have a look for that. Uh, Ed Dowd uh, went out, the interview with Ed Dowd went out at 1pm yesterday. Uh, that's on the website now. The numbers don't lie. Excess deaths with Ed Dowd, uh, Cheryl Granger and Debbie Evans. So have a look at that. 
Um, and on Tuesday at 1 p.m., uh, a fascinating interview with Clifford uh, Kirchhoff. Uh, and we're calling this Dark Crusade, a look at the origins of Christian Zionism. Uh, so that's going out at Tuesday at 1 p on Tuesday at 1 p.m. It'll be on the website shortly after that uh, if you want to watch on demand. So we're very much looking forward to that. Um, and then uh, just uh, this is a bit of an advertisement or at least a call for assistance. Uh, now, some time ago, we set up a Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office spending website, which is at fcdospending.ukcolumn.org. And this is basically showing we're, we're attempting to give access to uh, FCDO spending uh, in the same way that we did for uh, vaccine adverse reactions with the yellow card data. But if you look at the data that's on there at the moment, you'll find that it ends uh, in May 2022. And the reason for that is very simple. Um, the government normally published this data with all spending over £25,000 on a regular basis. But almost as soon as uh, this website went up, they stopped publishing the information. So in June this year, I put in, I think, or sorry, July this year, I put in a freedom of information request to the FCDO uh, asking for them to release uh, the data uh, for the, the next data set, which would be July 2022. And they refused that request on the basis that there's an exemption under the Freedom of Information Act uh, if uh, any data is uh, earmarked for future publication. Now, of course, in the meantime, they have not published the, the information uh, and they don't look like they're publishing it anytime soon. So I would like to ask everybody at this point um, to uh, cut out this little segment from today's UK column news, uh, send it to your MP and ask for questions to be asked, ask for some pressure to be put on. Uh, this information is important. We want to know where the FCDO is spending their money uh, and uh, it should be in the public record. Um, so please uh, do start putting some pressure on in the right places in order to get that published. Okay, uh, now... Ben, um, let's uh, go to Israel and, uh, well, Chatham House, first of all. Yeah, so I've got uh, two short videos, two very different opinions of what's going on on the ground in Israel and what should happen next. Okay, I'm going to come to the next. Here you go. Thank you. My name's Jonathan Paris. I want to pick up on Laurie's uh, comments on the current crisis. really not about the Middle East, it's about Israel. And to understand the crisis, again, you have to understand what a devastating calamity this is and what a loss of deterrence this is to see Israel suffer 1,400 casualties, <clears throat> nearly all civilian, nearly all old people or young people, many of them babies. To restore that deterrence will require certain actions by Israel. The United States understands that. So when you say the United States is saying yes, but, I think the Israeli answer will be, well, we'd like you to support us and we will do what we can. We'll delay this, but we will do what's necessary to restore our deterrence because Hezbollah will or will not enter the war, not because of U.S. warships, but because they will be afraid that what's going to happen to Hamas will happen to them, as it did in 2006. In other words, they're more afraid of real Israeli power unleashing real damage to Lebanon than they are of these theoretical warships that may or may not be used. So that's point number one. Israel will go it alone without Biden if they have to. They have a window here because they have the support of Biden and they have this, this cause. And they've paid, as Amos Yadlin says, they've already paid the price. So when you say it's, it's too much of a price to go into Gaza because you lose all those soldiers, they've already paid the price. 
So they're going to move, I think, to restore the deterrence. So how do you do, how do you restore deterrence? That's my question. Uh, it's so difficult when you lose something so valuable. How do you get it back? Will it take just this war, or will it take a series of wars, or will it ultimately take you know escalating until they really defang the Israel the Iranian nuclear program, which is I think the end goal of Israel right now. Yes. Yeah, that's what that's what they that's what they're putting out into the world. The the body language and that statement were absolutely remarkable. Um, that was at Chatham House in the in the past couple of weeks. A discussion about the uh, uh, the the um, uh, American the staying power of American power. That's what it was called. Um, and that's essentially what we're being asked to line up behind unquestioningly. They want a war. They want their deterrence back. They've already paid the price. Fascinating terminology there. And ultimately, with that gentleman, it sounds like he has some inside knowledge into what Israel are thinking. He wants a war with Iran. Right uh, now, a second interview uh, or second video uh, at the opposite end of the scale. Britain and America are tied together like intertwined knots with the Israeli state. And that is why they fear this demonstration today. Because us speaking out in Britain, one of the closest allies and indeed the people who helped establish Israel in the first place. The Balfour Declaration and 1948. The British are directly intertwined with every element of the establishment of Israel and the maintenance of the tyranny over the Palestinian people. And if we stand up and we defeat the British government, then the Israeli government will surely fall because Britain, America and Israel are close, are the most closely intertwined states on earth. Sometimes in history, there are a few knots which have to be broken, guardian knots that have to be broken in order to bring down the existing order in the world. And this is not, I say this to Tommy Robinson, this is nothing to do with Islam. Nothing to do even with the Muslims. Many Palestinians are Christians. Many Palestinians are atheists. And it's certainly not anti-Semitic because the Palestinians are Semitic people. This is a tyranny. They have used Israel to tyrannize the people of the Middle East. And by the way, the governments of the Middle East, Egypt, Moshe and Syria, they are supporting Israel by their utter and total silence in the face of barbarity carried out against the Palestinian people. Amazing speaker there, Heiko Ku, talking about the knot, the knot that must be broken. And what is the knot? Yeah, it's that integration of the United States, the UK and the Israeli governments. Uh, how does that manifest? Well, we've already talked about it earlier this week. Mark talk, Mike talked on Wednesday about the conservative friends of Israel. We also have the Labour friends of Israel. We have the fact that you can't say a single word about plans, obvious and advanced plans for one world governance without being accused of anti-Semitism. Uh, the blind commitment of our politicians to of, of all parties to Israeli warmongering 
in Gaza. Um, Boris Johnson, who's a, a war criminal, essentially marching against anti-Semitism on the streets of London in the past couple of weeks. The UK Health Tech Advisory Board, which we've covered extensively, Debbie's talked about it in the past couple of weeks, uh, the, the past month, which includes Nicole Junkerman on the board, who's deeply connected with Mossad. The prevalence of Israeli pharmaceuticals in the NHS supply chain, the fact that ARIA, which is the UK version of DARPA, is run by an American Israeli citizen overseeing the use of £800 million of UK taxpayer money to invest in innovation and advanced technologies. Is it the fact that our universities have been infiltrated by Israeli secret agents? Is it the fact that McKinsey's London office, McKinsey, the global management consulting firm, uh, their London office now actually oversees the UK and Israel. Those two entities, those two nations have been combined operationally by McKinsey. A fascinating development there. Is it the Balfour Declaration? Is it the fact that Lord Rothschild is sitting in the House of Lords? Is it all of these things that we're looking at? You know, I think Ku, uh, like him or loathe him, I think he's a fascinating character, has got it bang on the money. The question really for all of us is, is what to do about it. Uh, indeed. Uh, Vanessa, I just uh, wanted to give you the opportunity to, to respond to that a little bit, because the one thing that I, I thought you should comment on was, was uh, Heiko Ku's uh, comment about Syria, support of Israel by their silence. I, I think that deserves a little bit of comment. Yeah, definitely. I would 100% disagree with that claim. Um, the, one of the reasons that the war has been waged against Syria for 12 years is because of their long-term uh, support for the Palestinian cause and their current releasing territory for the Palestinian factions to actually attack the Israeli settlements within Golan territories. Uh, and of course, the ongoing aggression that uh, Syria suffers from Israel itself. Um, I think yesterday we had an attack so uh, I, I would strongly disagree uh, with the claim that Syria is silent on this. It's very far from silent. It's actually the longest term supplier of weapons to the Palestinian resistance. Uh, OK, now let's move on to uh, the uh, US media coverage. I think this is uh, what we're talking about here. Uh, sorry, US lies at least. Yeah. Um, so I just want to start off with this um, kind of shilling video from John Kirby that's putting, been putting out a series of fairly chilling videos. But let's roll this one. It is not the Israeli Defense Forces strategy to kill innocent people. It's happening. I admit that. Each one's a tragedy. But it's not like the Israelis are sitting around every morning and saying, hey, how many more civilians can we kill today? Let's go bomb a, let's go bomb a school or a hospital or a residential building and just and cause civilian casualties. They're not doing that. They're trying to go after Hamas, and it's a very difficult task. When Hamas, oh, by the way, in addition to deliberately slaughtering people, is deliberately hiding themselves in residential buildings, in hospitals, in tunnels, uh, making it, putting the innocent people of Gaza directly in the crossfire. Now, you tell me, is that right? Just extraordinary when you consider that until today, in 61 days of aggression on Gaza, Israel has dropped 50,000 tons of explosives on civilians, almost exclusively on civilians. I mean, I'm yet to see any actual photographs of uh, killed Hamas uh, leadership. Uh, there are claims of them being killed. And then, of course, we've had this recent report, I think, in the last week from 972 MAG, which is an Israeli media outlet, 
which was picked up by Jonathan Cook, who lives in the occupied territories uh, in the West Bank, Israel-Palestine war, how Israel has used an AI genocide program to obliterate Gaza. And according to whistleblowers, Israel is using an AI system to generate targets so fast based on inputs so broad that everyone in Gaza is effectively in the crosshairs. And it's far from surgical, as Jonathan Cook explains, or, or rather the very whistleblowers do explain to 972. The numbers increase from dozens of civilian deaths apparently permitted as collateral damage as part of an attack on a senior Hamas official in previous operations to hundreds of civilian deaths as collateral damage. A former military intelligence official said the policy was designed to make most of Gaza's infrastructure legitimate targets. Hamas is everywhere in Gaza. There's no building that does not have something of Hamas in it. So if you want to find a way to turn a high rise into a target, you'll be able to do so. And even more uh, chilling, I think, and people can go and read the 972 mag original article. Um, the goal he observed was to address a problem in earlier bombing campaigns against Gaza that the Israeli military quickly ran out of Hamas and Islamic Jihad targets that its human staff could identify. Of course, removing the ability of human staff to actually discern and, and perhaps discriminate between civilian targets and Hamas targets. A former intelligence officer told 972 that the target's administrative division that runs gospel, again, we have these, these religious terms being brought in as Netanyahu brought in the term Amalek, which entitles the Israelites to exterminate the Palestinians. Um, had been turned into a mass assassination factory. Tens of thousands of people had been listed as junior Hamas operatives and were therefore treated as targets. I assume that means children. The officer added that the emphasis is on quantity and not on quality. The source who worked in the division added that most of Gospel's recommendations were being nodded through without meaningful scrutiny. We work quickly and there is no time to delve deep into the target. The view is that we are judged according to how many targets we manage to generate. I mean, this is completely horrifying. And then, of course, on top of that, we have U.S. approval for the IDF chief flooding Gaza tunnels with seawater is a good idea. Khan Yunus in the south, the south, which was supposed to be a safe area when people were being driven out of the north, is now heavily under bombardment and, and there are massacres ongoing. And of course, flooding the tunnels with seawater, it puts their own hostages at risk. Um, various meetings within uh, the Senate in, in Israel um, have, have complained about this and saying that their own hostages will be put at risk. But of course, it will destroy the aquifers and, and the water processing systems in Gaza itself and increase the humanitarian crisis. And then, of course, we have the ongoing uh, violence in West Bank, not only against uh, Palestinians, but also against Palestinian Jews, Orthodox Jews, that here were celebrating the release of their members from uh, IOF conscription and were then beaten up by IOF and security members. Uh, this was in occupied Jerusalem. Okay, thank you. Uh, now, uh, David Cameron has been uh, in uh, the United States uh, over the last couple of days, uh, he's um, been doing all kinds of things with the U.S. administration in order to generate uh, support for more support for Ukraine as his aim. 
but he's turned his focus back on Russia. So let's just have a listen to this. Today I'm in Washington having meetings with my counterparts in the US administration, but I can also announce today that we are sanctioning two individuals connected to the Russian intelligence agency, the FSB, for trying to interfere in our democracy. We've always known that Russia tries to do this, but today we're taking the extra step of issuing those sanctions and naming the individuals. This is unacceptable behavior. This is something that shouldn't take place, and so we're naming the individuals to call Russia out to we know what you're doing and it has to stop. So here we are, we're back in Russiagate again and uh, Russiagate UK this time. Uh, now the uh, government is claiming that uh, this organization, uh, Star Blizzard, uh, which is uh, a Russian FSB cyber actor, according to the National Cybersecurity Center, uh, is uh, part of the, the problem here. Uh, they're saying that uh, they are, they've exposed a series of attempts, of attempts by this organization uh, to target high-profile individuals and entities through cyber uh, uh, operations. They're talking about uh, judges, politicians, and a whole bunch of others in an effort to undermine our democracy. So targeting, including spear phishing, of parliamentarians from multiple political parties from at least 2015 through to this year. Uh, the hack of the US, uh, UK-US trade documents that were leaked ahead of the 2019 general election they're placing at, at the feet of these people. Uh, we're going to have a laugh at this one. The 2018 hack of the Institute for Statecraft, a UK think tank uh, whose work included initiatives to defend democracy against disinformation. Uh, the more recent hack of the Institute for Statecraft's founder, Christopher Donnelly, whose account was compromised uh, from December 2021, uh, and the targeting of universities, journalists, public sector, non-government uh, organizations, and other civil society organizations, many of whom pay a key role in UK democracy. Uh, now, I just want to uh, choose one of those, which is the Institute for Statecraft and Chris Donnelly. If you want to find out more about that, uh, have a look at this article and, in fact, a series of articles on the UK Column website. Uh, of course, it was the UK Column that... Uh, exclusively exposed the fact that Integrity Initiative was working from a derelict, half-demolished mill uh, in Scotland, apparently. At least that was the address that they were using. Uh, but if, if you have a read at that article, Integrity Initiative, a look in the deep, into the deep state, you get a clue of what I'm talking about here. I just want to bring some faces on screen because who's been behind the whole Russiagate uh, saga in the United States, but also in the UK, uh, Christopher Steele, uh, so-called former uh, MI6 agent, he produced the Trump dossier. Stefan Halper, uh, who's uh, been linked with CIA, FBI, and MI6. Richard Dearlove, of course, the former head of MI6. Uh, Christopher Andrew, the official historian of MI5, all involved in pushing this narrative. And as far as the UK side goes, Christopher Steele, of course, himself, as we mentioned, involved in the Trump dossier, but also in the UK, the Russia report. Uh, he provided evidence for that, and also the Huawei dossier, and also the China report as well. So, so this is a, a cabal, a group of people within the UK that have been pushing an anti-Russian narrative for a couple of decades at the very least. Um, and, uh, well, they were very embarrassed by the exposure of the Integrity Initiative, uh, because that, of course, was showing that uh, anti-Russian narratives being placed into the press through cooperative journalists and so on. Uh, this is an effort to drive public opinion uh, towards accepting conflict with Russia, uh, which is eventually going to become something significantly more than the kind of information hybrid war that we've got at the moment. Uh, Vanessa, let's come back to you and uh, media malfeasance. 
Yes, so I first of all wanted to just start with a series of headlines and reports, particularly from the BBC and CNN. So first of all, what we're seeing happening very often recently is, for example, people are losing members of their families. There is no uh, description of who has actually killed them. So this headline from the BBC, Israel, Gaza, again, that framing of war is only Gaza. Londoner loses 42 family members. I looked at the article itself to see if within the article they said anything. In fact, they doubled down. A Palestinian woman, woman who lost 42 relatives in a Gaza bomb strike has said she wants to bring her surviving loved ones to safety in London. So even within that sentence, they don't uh, describe the bomb as coming from Israel. And then CNN, um, this was quite extraordinary. So the original headline that they put out, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm laughing because it's, it's just ridiculous. The video shows a man in military fatigues, so not an IOF officer, shooting mentally disabled Palestinian in the West Bank. Uh, the video is circulating if people want to watch it. They then changed the headline today, actually, when I went to find the article. The video shows Israeli soldiers shooting mentally disabled Palestinian in West Bank. And Dr. Mads Gilbert, who was uh, working as a surgeon in Gaza during the beginning of part of uh, the ongoing aggression by Israel, he put out, which I've done regularly on uh, X or Twitter, um, so he's saying basically the UN itself in its various flash reports, no names, not Israel. Um, and, and this is a very worrying trend that we're seeing. And then, of course, what do we see? We see that the BBC will, on the other side, very quickly run with a report based on, I, I've read this article, and I have to say, there is no photographic evidence. There is no uh, hard evidence. There is just testimony. And we'll come on to that later. But they've run with the uh, story, Hamas raped and mutilated women on the 7th of October, BBC hears. Interesting. So Max Blumenthal uh, did an investigation, particularly on one of the photos that's on a separate website claiming to be one of the rape victims. It turned out that it was an earlier photo, earlier than the 7th of October, of a Kurdish fighter that had, whose body had been defiled. That was on, uh, I think, a Japanese website. You can go to Max's tweet to, to take a look at the two uh, references that he makes there. But he also then writes a very good article in the last, uh, I think, yesterday, scandal-stained Israeli rescue group fuels October the 7th fabrications, including these rape reports. Now, interestingly, this group, let's have a look at who they are exactly. Um, but I just want to point out, if you go to the website, if, if you Google uh, Zaka Israel, it comes up as a search and rescue group. Now, I'm smiling, but of course, what does that remind me of? It reminds me of the White Helmets producing um, much of the propaganda to demonize and criminalize the Syrian government. Um, including the, the alleged chemical weapon attacks that have been roundly debunked, including by OPCW inspectors themselves. Um, so that immediately caught my interest. And then when we look at the, the propaganda that they're providing, for, for example, the US State Department, for Joe Biden, Tony Blinken, for the BBC, for CNN, it was founded by a serial rapist known as the Haredi Jeffrey Epstein, Israeli ultra-Orthodox rescue group, Dhaka 
is responsible for some of the most obscene post-October the 7th atrocity fabrications from beheaded babies to mass rape to a fetus cut from its mother, bearing in mind, of course, the terrorists that Israel um, backed in Syria did carry out these atrocities. Um, its rival, uh, United Hatzalah, has spun out bogus tales of babies baked in ovens as it closes in on a 50 million fundraising uh, goal. Then let's, let's look further at, at who they are. So their presence at the heart of a high-level rape investigation is fraught with irony. Until recently, Israeli media coverage of the organization largely focused on gruesome sex crimes committed by its founder, ultra-Orthodox bigwig Yehuda Meshi Zahav, known among Jerusalem's Orthodox community as the Haredi Jeffrey Epstein, due to his well-documented penchant for raping young people of both sexes. Meshi Zahav's decades-long rampage of sexual abuse was undoubtedly known to Zaka staffers and only came to an end following. Um, his suicide. Brad Pierce, an independent scholar who published an extensive profile of Zaka's corruption in October 2023, so very recently, described the group as the most opaque and suspicious non-governmental organization I have ever investigated. So bear in mind, this is the group providing the evidence. Um, then, uh, as Max points out on Twitter, BBC's key voice here is May Golan, who led anti-black race riots in Tel Aviv before she was appointed Israel's Minister of Women's Empowerment. I'm proud to be a racist, Golan declared at one fascist rally she led. So let's play the actual part of the interview with the BBC and then Golan uh, at this rally. They were burned, they were without organs, they were butchered completely, they were slaughtered to the core. You had heads roaming around, you had breasts of women roaming around, and, yeah. I just wanted to focus a bit more on the, on the practicalities of gathering. <laughs> And then let's have a look at the possibility of projection, of course, the, the instances of rape, particularly against, uh, this is all from Israeli media, by the way, this isn't from any kind of opposition media. Um, cigarette burns, beatings, attempted sexual assaults, uh, settlers and soldiers abused Palestinians, particularly children. 20% increase in reported sexual assaults in Israeli army in 2016. A third of Israeli soldiers were sexually harassed in 2021 report. We are all sexually harassed in the Israeli army almost on a daily basis. I don't have time to go into the specifics about particularly the child rape and abuse uh, by the IOF forces against Palestinian child detainees, but it's available at the various uh, NGOs that cover this type of thing, like DCI Palestine. 
Thank you, Vanessa. Right. Uh, let's come back to the UK and the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill. Uh, this is uh, going through Parliament at the minute, uh, and this is the House of Commons uh, briefing, if, uh, House of Commons Library briefing, sorry, if you want to go and have a look at this. It was published on the 17th of November. Uh, just to make the point uh, that this bill will, amongst other things, <laughs> other things include, by the way, the, the blanket sharing of uh, all kinds of data about us uh, as UK citizens with all kinds of companies around the world. Uh, this bill will establish a framework for the provision of digital verification services to enable digital identities to be used with the same confidence as paper documents. So I just very briefly wanted to mention that, of course, uh, the UK government is determined that we all know that the government is not making digital identities mandatory. This is their claim. Uh, this is not this legislation is not a step towards ID cards. Instead, we're setting robust standards to make private sector solutions protect privacy, boost security, enable greater access, and save time and money for individuals and businesses. And of course, part of what they said uh, was that uh, there would always be non-digital uh, mechanisms for people to access government services, uh, even if uh, you know if if anybody was uncomfortable with using digital. Uh, so it's perhaps surprising then. I say that with uh, irony and sarcasm all at the same time, uh, that HMR HMRC has now announced that just a few weeks before the deadline for self-assessment tax forms to be put in place, uh, they are now shutting the helpline uh, for just about everyone. Uh, so there will be no telephone option. You're going to have to go digital. And so my question then is, do we believe a word uh, coming out of the mouths of uh, the government with respect to the potential for mandatory digital ID in the not too distant future. Uh, ben, let's come back to you now and Kenya, and uh, you're going to start off with uh, a UK column uh, video. Uh, I'm not going to show any video, but I, it, I have referenced uh, an interview from September on the column with a gentleman called Jusper Machogo, uh, which gives some really good context to what I'm going to talk about today, really just to shine a light on what's happening in the Commonwealth uh, more broadly, but Kenya specifically. Um, in the interview, it was uncovered that essentially no one really cares about climate change. And and this, this gentleman, by the way, is, is a farmer and an environmentalist and a former member of Greenpeace who was actually really interested in and invested in protecting the climate. But his view is that um, no one cares about it in Kenya. The locals are focused on feeding their families. He finds the UN narrative, which concentrates on famines and droughts, sustainable development goals and climate change, to not be of the interest of Africa and the Africans, and he sees the role of the UN, the IMF, the World Bank, and the World Economic Forum as not having the interests of Kenyans at heart. He actually perceives these supranational bodies as conduits along which pressure is applied to national governments to comply with the climate orthodoxy. And that is what we're seeing play out uh, at mass scale. That's essentially what's happening at COP at the moment in Dubai. And the Commonwealth is being used as a way to uh, promote this global agenda and also to test out a lot of these policies before they're implemented more broadly. Um, there was a big event which took place in September, the Africa Climate Summit, which was essentially a precursor to COP. So this was uh, the same policy agenda. The communique issued at the end of the summit parroted every single line that you could possibly think of aligned to the UN strategy. A lot of this is about um, uh, finance, actually, and I think that's a really interesting point to land on with this video here from Simon Steele, the guy leading COP, uh, for us to understand what this is really about. Finance is the great enabler 
for climate action. We need to get away from the notion that funding for developing countries is charity or development aid. As long as we think of climate funding this way, it remains vulnerable. It can be cut as soon as domestic political considerations dictate it. We need to see investing in climate mitigation and adaptation everywhere as enlightened self-interest. Yeah, money, 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 money. That's what it's all about. And actually, Steele himself is from Grenada, which is also part of the Commonwealth. So actually, uh, the, the, the former British Empire, essentially, is being used as a way to coordinate this. It's, you know, when you dig into it, that's actually a lot of what's happening on the ground here. Uh, and that video um, that we just watched reminded me of another video, which we're going to play now from Julian Assange. Because the goal is not to completely subjugate Afghanistan. The goal is to use Afghanistan to wash money out of the tax bases of the United States, out of the tax bases of European countries, through Afghanistan, and back into the hands of a transnational security elite. That is the goal, i.e. the goal is to have an endless war, not a successful war. So obviously, Assange there talking about the war on terror, but what effectively we have in front of us now is a war on climate change, an endless war on climate change. Uh, it's an unwinnable battle. You can't beat the climate. I mean, it's just a ridiculous thing to think about. Um, the war on terror ultimately delivering more terror, the war on drugs delivering more drugs, and the war on climate change, I don't know, is it going to deliver more environmental and human catastrophe? I think it probably will do unfortunately. Uh, and these African nations are right in the thick of it. Uh, uh, their media and their political classes appear to be completely controlled by the West. Um, and it's not just climate change, it's all the other components of this global plan as well. So uh, we've just seen that Bill Gates is pushing digital ID for newborns in the Kenyan health system. Uh, they are progressing with these plans that are obviously uh, on the agenda in the UK and everywhere else as well. But as I said, they're using these African nations as a test bed for a lot of this technology in the same way that they used the pharmaceutical industry, used uh, African nations as a test bed for its drugs um, over the past hundred years, over a hundred years now, actually. Um, all of this is obviously being positioned as a great act of altruism. It's about leveling up the global South. It's about addressing the, the, the uh, and making amends for the, the horrors of history. Charles, again, was in Kenya recently. As I say, this is really a sort of focal point for a lot of this stuff happening at the moment. Uh, so Charles was in Kenya recently and basically uh, apologized informally for slavery and colonial abuse. He talked about the abhorrent and unjustifiable acts of violence committed against Kenyans during their right for independence. He talked about his great sorrow and deep regret. And Kenya's president, William Ruto, praised the king's exemplary courage in shedding light on uncomfortable truths. Um, and that's very much in the context of a big push towards reparations. Uh, a lot of the African nations and the Caribbean nations, their political class in particular, are pushing essentially for more money. That's what they're looking for. Um, uh, and by the way, my grandfather was a slave. He was in a slave labor camp in the Second World War. I've thought about this a lot. The way to make reparations for slavery is first and foremost to end slavery today. And there are actually 40 million people, it's estimated, currently living in slavery, which is 10 times the amount 
who were taken from Africa uh, in the transatlantic slave trade over a period of a couple of hundred years. There, are, you know, there is a, an order of magnitude more slaves alive today than they were during that period. The supply chains of all of our global corporations are created using slaves. In fact, most of the technology is being put, put forward by the climateers, the people who are going to come in and save humanity, are actually predicated on the use of slave labor. So the hypocrisy here is, is absolutely ph phenomenal. Um, and as a final point, uh, the, the Guardian is uh, going on a big fundraising drive. And I just want to state very emphatically that you should not under any circumstances, support The Guardian. You should support UK Column instead. Oh, thank you very much for that, Ben. I completely agree with that. I'm just, I'm just. Uh, well, we'll talk about more of that in extra. Now, look, I want to uh, finish today with a couple of video clips uh, from uh, Twitter. And I'm going to say thank you very much to the people that posted these. Um, and this is uh, two separate clips uh, with people uh, Addressing Keir Starmer, first of all, while he was on a train. Let's have a look at this. Keir, how many more children in Palestine have to die before you call for a ceasefire? Over 7,000 children have died. Over 7,000 children have been slaughtered by Israel. This is unacceptable. What happened to human rights? What happened to democracy? We call for peace, we call for democracy. We don't see any of that when it comes to the Palestinians. 7,000 children, how many more have to die? 20,000 people, how many more people have to die? This is unacceptable. Where is your human humanity? Where is your humanity? Please don't touch me. Please do not touch me. I'm not doing anything wrong. Okay, I'm not doing anything wrong. This is a, I paid for a ticket, I'm on the train. So I think this is the type of thing we need to see much more of. Uh, that person, very polite, very quiet, uh, making very firm and making the point, uh, but uh, not afraid to go and speak to Keir Starmer directly. Now, once Starmer got off the train, this is what happened. Now, okay, that was a bit uh, more boisterous, but nonetheless, uh, he was not at any personal risk uh, and certainly collected, uh, sorry, surrounded by plenty of heavies. Uh, but if you were looking closely at the look on his face, uh, he was not comfortable. And I think a bit more discomfort uh, in our MPs is something that we should, uh, and particularly political leaders, is something that we should encourage. Uh, we're absolutely not suggesting uh, that there should be any violent action. That would be really uh, silly and uh, actually counterproductive, uh, but uh, I think a lot more pressure needs to be placed on some of these uh, people. And uh, so I would applaud everybody that was involved in the production of those two videos. And I think we'll leave it there for today. We'll be back in a few minutes uh, for some extra with Ben and Vanessa. If you're a UK Colin member, uh, join us for that. Uh, otherwise, we'll see you at 1pm as usual on Monday. Hope everybody has a great weekend and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.